0: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
2: I never win and tell.
0: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website
3: for details. KCAA. Loma Linda. 10.50 a.m. The station that
4: needs no listener behind. This episode of the House of Mystery is brought to you by Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. LegacyFoodStorage.com Fiction. Science Fiction. Horror.
1: Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You
2: have now entered the house of mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, our hour
5: on six point five AM Los Angeles. One oh two point three FM Riverside, And
2: one oh
6: five O AM Palm Springs. Oh welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. David Karate Martino is here. <laughs> I am here. How are you doing? Oh, you good. You and you got what what happened? You got
7: you know, the weekend you did all that uh
6: Kung-fu yeah. and stuff, eh? Hey? Like, yeah, you know,
7: 14 hours of uh, stick fighting and <laughs> all that stuff.
6: Sounds, sounds like something I would – no, that's uh, that's something I do, but different. Um, <laughs> wow. But that's crazy. I, so yeah. you, that's great.
7: Uh, and you got some sort of uh,
6: – um, I see, certificate that you're putting all over the Internet.
7: Oh, yeah. Well, I got uh, – we get a certificate for doing the 14-hour training, and I got my first level – in the um, in the system that this one teacher teaches.
6: Oh, is that is that like one of those they give an award to everybody? <laughs> <laughs>
7: yeah. Well, the certificate for uh, for being there, but yeah, you we, you can go up and and basically you're testing for for your first ranking. Yeah. Within within a system.
6: So everybody gets an award. <laughs> yeah.
7: Exactly.
6: <laughs> yeah, I understand yeah, that. You know. Yeah. Why not? Well, today we are going to talk true, true crime and we're going to talk about the, um, man with a killer smile. And it's, uh, the life and crimes of a serial mass murderer, volume 13 of the North Texas crime and criminal justice series. So it sounds like something you're, you're, you, you've done. So, um, well, anyway, uh, let's welcome Mitchell P. Roth to the show. Thank you. Mitch, so what's going on here? You've been writing, uh, about this serial killer. How did you come across this, this, this story? Well,
8: that's, that's the more interesting, uh, element to it. Uh, about 25 years ago or 20 years ago, I was teaching a class on serial homicide and mass murder. And I had a student tell me that he was related to the fifth white person, uh, electrocuted in Texas who was also A mass murderer and a serial killer and you know i told him (laughs) congratulations (laughs) he won the nobel prize so um so anyway i said do you have any family papers or documents which i usually will do and he said well actually we do have some research that we've compiled i said can you make me a copy of it and this is a long time ago and um So he did that for me. He actually uh, made a copy, and I've held on to it for like 20 years, waiting for, you know, in between books that I was working on at the perfect time. And, uh, you know, and this was kind of my pathway uh, to doing the research, which I started um, right before the uh, epidemic started. I went up to uh, the panhandle of Texas and to a courthouse and got the trial transcripts and visited all the uh, places uh, from the – The crime spree. And uh, fortunately, I was able to write it over the COVID break. Uh, And, uh, you know, so a lot of serendipity there. And um, that's, and I think that the most important element of it is no one's ever written about this guy. I mean, uh, you know, he's not in any of the compendiums by Harold Schechter or or anybody else um, of mass murder and serial killers. And uh, yet he, you know, he killed 13 people over a nine-year period. And uh, you know i 've kind of added him or reinvigorated him, um, returned him to uh, his proper place among uh, the degenerates of the world.
6: Well, that was nice of you. Um, well, I wonder why they they nobody 's really caught him before, I guess just not heard of him. Well I think because the
8: war it took place, it took place you know out in the, you know, the high plains. Um, uh, near, near uh, Clovis, New Mexico, uh, very sparsely populated, not a lot of newspapers and that sort of thing. It was covered pretty heavily at the time, but there were some other murder cases going on in the uh, 1920s that, you know, basically, uh, you know, got the, this, most of the coverage. And um, I think part of it, too, is they, it took a while for them to discover that he had committed a mass murder nine years earlier. And that wasn't until right before he was executed. And so, uh, you know, he might be part of the DNA of that uh, area up in the panhandle, but, you know, nobody else really uh, is that familiar with him.
6: Wow. So what's what's the basic premise of this? Now, first of all, this was back in the uh, 1920s?
8: Right, right. uh, He was caught in 1926 and executed in 1928.
6: Wow. They did that fast back then.
8: Yeah, and this was after a year of appeals, and, <laughs> and actually he's buried about you know hundred feet from my uh, office in the, the Texas prison cemetery.
6: Wow, did you go visit him then, or?
8: Uh, yeah, I, I pay homage to him from time to time.
6: So, so what do you what did you find out about him? Like, what was there anything special or different about him, or was he a pretty normal guy?
8: Well, the more I learned about um, them, the more he kind of fit into the psychopathy that you find with so many other um, serial killers, and uh, I should say family annihilators as well. And uh, you know, and I found that everything there have been you know book chapters and things written about them, and even in the family uh, you know records, I found most of what they had uh, was misinformation, and uh, I was able to kind of fix that through you know research through you know, ancestry sites and um, archives and things like that. Uh, but what I th- found interesting was that he, you know, went to prison at an early age, like 17, 18, for embezzlement. And for about two years, he was on all of the f- different farm units in Texas, you know, uh, turpentine farm, cutting sugar cane, all these miserable jobs. And I'm sure that didn't help his outlook on society. And by the time he got out, you know, he was warning, you know, all young people not to go to prison because you know what happens in prison. So he, you know, didn't quite, um, you know, get to the point. But I have a feeling that he was, you know, physically abused um, quite a bit.
6: So his name is George Jefferson Hassel, right?
8: Right, right.
6: And um, so now what was his situation when when he was doing these mass murders? Was he working? Did he have a family? Did he... uh... What, what was going on in his life?
8: Well, he, was a, he pretty much was a laborer. You know, he had different types of jobs, like working uh, like an, on an oil pump, working uh, as a farmer, you know, you know just basically uh, transient jobs, um, which you find with, you know, some uh, mass murders and serial killers that move about. What makes this case so um, different is that he committed two mass murders, you know, nine years apart. And if you, according to the FBI definition of serial homicide, two murders with a cooling-off period makes him a serial killer. Um, he also had a couple of murders in between. But he, here we have the murderer, multiple mass murder, serial murder, family annihilator. And one of the things I found that was interesting was that all of his uh, – he didn't share DNA with any of his victims. He killed uh, – uh, a wife and three stepchildren. Then he killed another wife and eight stepchildren, and in between he uh, probably killed his last wife's former husband, who was his brother. And uh, so, uh, you know, I I wrote to John Douglas, and, and he told him I said, you know, could I call this guy a serial mass murderer? And he goes, Yeah, I guess so. And uh, he wrote a nice blurb for my book, by the way. Um, and, uh, you know, he kind of fills a uh, niche uh, that not many people can claim to fill, you know, 13 victims, two mass murders um, over a nine-year period. And there's probably other victims that we don't know about. He always kind of hinted at that.
7: Were there any signs of uh, that he'd become a mass murderer in his childhood or teenage years? Well,
8: not really. I mean, he didn't have uh, – I mean, he was beaten by his father, he claims, Uh, His mother was always smacking him around for violating violating biblical scriptures and that sort of thing. But he was out on his own in his teens, and uh, he pretty much just, you know, was, you know, he had very poor impulse control, which often is a sign of, you know, uh, kind of a lack of prefrontal cortex activity uh, in the brain. Uh, But he kind of, he didn't plan for anything, what he was going to do for a job, you know, and, and this, I guess, you know, explains why he ended up in jail so many times. And he could never explain why he killed, um, the families. You know, he said with his first wife and the three kids, it was a common law wife, um, that we were just as happy as can be in bed, you know, cuddling and everything. Then I grabbed her by the throat and strangled her. You know, I can't understand why I did it. And then I decided I would go kill the kids as well. And there are little children in the next room. And, uh, over time, he came up with other explanations. He said the kids were getting on his nerves, and, you know, any parent can understand that. And uh, and also, too, he thought she was stealing money from him. I mean, you know, he's so full of these stories, it's hard to tell um, or substantiate some of his claims for stories uh, that you find in this book. And he was living under an assumed name uh, in California, and so... Right after killing the first family, he buried them under the house they were living in and told all the neighbors that they had gone to Australia or San Francisco, depending on who he was telling the story to, and he stayed in the house. He would even bring other women there for a short period of time, um, knowing that they were down below, you know, under the house. I think he kind of liked that. And uh, even later on, he would drive by the house, knowing the bodies were still, you know, under the house and they had not been found. So... Anyway, he moves to, uh, he leaves the house, moves back to Texas where he was from. He was from the uh, Fort Worth, Dallas area, born in 1888, same year Jack the Ripper was busy. And, um, and so he, he moved to his brother's farm, which was just in, uh, in Oklahoma. And, uh, anyway, they had a big family. He was a farmer. He was relatively prosperous, you know, for the 1920s. And the, father, the, the brother and um, George were in a corral one day, and the brother died being kicked by a horse. Well, George was the only witness, and you got to believe that he probably killed um, the brother. And then he decided he'd marry the wife, his former, you know, sister-in-law, and take over the kids. And pretty soon, uh, I think the neighbors were talking, and they moved to Texas, because and he lived under his own name. And, uh, you know, it was about a year later, uh, one night he decided uh, she was complaining about his drinking. Uh, he always had alcohol out in the, uh, you know, in the barn. And he, a lot of uh, journalists refer to him as the Jekyll and Hyde killer, you know, and the alcohol was the potion that he took. Because before each of these murders, he uh, apparently drank some alcohol. And uh, she was complaining about that. But the worst part of his story, though, is he had uh, sex and had impregnated two of his nieces who became his stepdaughters. And they were underage. Uh, One of them gave birth to a child. And, of course, that, you know, went over real big. And uh, she moved out. And she was the only child in the family to survive. But she moved to California with the baby. Uh, but the most recent person he, he was uh, a 15 uh year old uh uh niece and he had impregnated her and uh, the wife started hassling about that hassling about the booze and he just had enough so he decided to strangle her and the 2 year old that was laying in bed with them and then just go room to room um this evening that one evening and killing uh, the rest of the kids
6: and and so nobody noticed like neighbors or police or family or anything like that?
8: Well, you know, the thing is, is that uh, all the people, as he stayed there, he he told them these cock and bull stories, you know, they moved up to Oklahoma, Uh, they didn't like the school system here, this and that and this, and uh, people began to wonder about it because uh, they had seen two of his kids digging a pit near the house. And they didn't need this pit, like a storm cellar for storing goods because they already had one. And his explanation um, before he was going to leave of why he filled it up was, uh, you know, well, we just didn't need it. When when in actuality, that's where the bodies were all buried, like 10 feet from the house. And uh, one of the things that happened is right before he left, I mean, he was a very um, greedy type of guy. He had a, a huge um well, he had an auction of all of his farm tools and, you know, everything. And it was widely publicized. And, and he was working at the auction. You had hundreds of people there. And the auction was being held over the grave where his family was buried. And um, so, anyway, a couple of the women that were there, they didn't believe what George was telling them. They'd gone to Oklahoma and he was going to follow them. So they snuck into his house, basically, And they found a lot of um, gear that they would have taken with them if they had gone up to Oklahoma, children's clothes and toys and Bibles and things like that. And uh, they reported all of these uh, suspicions to their husbands and they reported them to the local sheriff. Um, And, uh, and this was in Farwell, Texas. And they got on the case, they questioned him um, and they were trying to figure out, well, if he killed them and you know, where would they be? And, uh, it wasn't it was within a month they had discovered that the bodies were right near the house.
6: Wow. So was I guess he was a pretty well liked person then in the neighborhood, generally.
8: Well, he was very charismatic. Um you know he you know the reason I titled the book The Man with the Killer's Smile is because his smile was so disarming and plus his he had nice teeth and he looked like a commercial he could do a commercial today with all the fake teeth. And uh he uh like many uh, serial killers was you know, very good at knowing what to say and when to say it, um, knowing how to, you know, disarm people, you know, and um, hide his true nature and, uh, you know, very glib. And, but he, you know, ultimately had no empathy, no remorse. And he loved telling the story of how he killed them all, you know, in many, many interviews that he would give, um, you know, over the year uh, before he was executed.
6: Wow that's just it's, it's crazy did you did he have supporters
8: no no a, a, you know absolutely none in fact he tried to get a change of venue um but, you know he felt like you know these murders were taking took place in farwell texas and uh he needed three people to sign um the, these forms and the only person that signed the form was him and uh and that wasn't enough so obviously they had to trial there and um but the, you know he was vilified, you know, universally, and uh, you know people, of course, later on said they suspected this, suspected that. But you know he was, you know, you know a, a chameleon.
7: Well, he was in the military. What was his uh, what was his record like? I don't know if there was a record at the time, or you know, did he have problems in the military? How, how did that work for him?
8: Well, this is, this is kind of an interesting aspect of his life too. So you know. Uh, on the spur of the moment, um, after, you know, he killed, he joined the Navy and, uh, and then he deserted from the Navy very quickly afterwards. Then he joined the army and deserted very quickly. And he did these under two different names. And then when World War I broke out, he just tried to join the Navy again uh, under his real name. And, uh, he got caught and he ended up doing, um, a couple of years, uh, for desertion and fraud. Um at Leavenworth prison and at a couple of the na Navy, Navy discipline centers um it's not real clear you know how much time he did, but apparently it was a very tough experience. These were you know a couple of the toughest prisons in america and uh you know I think it just added to uh you know the, you know his maybe his hatred for society um or his just not caring but um i I tried to find his record at Leavenworth I couldn't find it. Um, the only records, prison records I was able to get were, you know, from Texas, from Huntsville. I got his records for when he was in for embezzlement and then when he was sentenced to death.
6: He looked like a pretty big guy. Was he, Was just from the pictures, was he or was that just, is that just the.
8: Well, that, that's an, another interesting aspect. Every, every description um, that you find in newspapers and interviews, they call him a giant of a man. Um, and, uh, I, I have his prison records and it said he was just under five foot eight, which would be maybe, you know, average, you know, for that time period. And that he weighed about 165 pounds, but he, when you see some of the photos, you know, I have them in the book, his hands are enormous. And, um, he looked very muscular. His arms were long, very, you know, almost like a primate and, uh, you know, and he always had labor jobs. So, you know, he was a pretty tough guy, but, uh, and the way he carried himself too, you know, his head tilted back. Um, he perhaps gave off the, uh, you know, the feeling that he was much bigger than he was, but he, you know, he was finally when he was in prison they were describing him as he loved to eat. That's the one, if you hear complaints from him, it's always about not having enough food and not having enough tobacco. And, uh, You know, it almost gets to be comical, you know, uh, when you hear these interviews with him. uh, Because he won't, you know, do an interview with a reporter unless they give him a cigar or this or that. And while he was waiting in jail uh, to be sent to Huntsville, he was making doilies, these beautiful doilies in his cell and selling them so he could have money for tobacco.
6: Wow. Now, did, did he have any family left when he was in prison?
8: Well, he had... This is another interesting aspect. I mean, originally I titled the book um, The First Texas Bluebeard um, because, as you know, a bluebeard you know, ma- uh, marries and kills a sequence of, of wives. Um, and this was the first guy ever uh, referred to as a Texas bluebeard. Um, but uh, the editors thought that, you know, no one knows what the hell a bluebeard yeah. is. <laughs> so, I, I went with, you know, so I went without it. But he did marry right after he got out of the jail for embezzlement, and he had a child with the woman. And um, it was the only biological child that we know of that he ever had. And he um, always blamed her for him going bad. He said that she left him and that, uh, you know, he never loved another woman after that. And so uh, she's the only one who escaped his clutches, essentially, uh, because he killed his next two wives. Uh, but I did some research, and right before the book was, you know, to you know, go to the editors and everything, I was over at the uh, archives in Austin, and I found a letter that was written 40 years um, after he was executed by his actual, his son, uh, who had been left with the with the with the mother that is so so-called abandoned him, and uh, it turns out he said that they left because he was trying to kill them. And uh, that kind of filled, uh, you know, that missing spot there. I mean, there could have been three dead wives, and I, I you know, I, I really that was, you know, a lot. Uh, again, not to overuse the term, but serendipity finding that letter in all of these
6: files. Wow, uh, did, were his parents dead already?
8: Yeah, and um, you know, the, th- the interesting thing is he said they died much earlier um, than they did in all of his uh, uh, interviews. And I think uh, he was trying to make it look like he was out on the road by himself much earlier. Uh, he said his mother died, the father remarried and, uh, that the next, that the father's wife poisoned him. So he decided, and this was when he was still in his uh, late teens, early twenties, he decided to go to where this took place and kill the family that, um, that had, that had killed the father. And he got too drunk, he said, and, you know, he just kind of missed his chance to do that. But that was the first inkling that he had, that he had this in him to do that. Uh, the problem with it is, is as I researched it, um, all the none of the dates matched. It's, you know, the father lived much longer than, you know, being so-called poisoned. There's no record of the father ever having another wife. Um so you know a lot a lot of it was just his embellishment I mean, he had a very fertile imagination that's for sure Yeah
6: it's always it's always hard to trust people like that in what they're saying because a lot of times they're just trying to manipulate so, something out of whoever they're talking to to tell that story you know
8: Right right Um and he had probably killed his only brother but he had several sisters um that were still alive and they actually tried to help him um in his last days uh, you know, they even came to Huntsville uh, right before he was executed as they were trying to help him get an insanity defense and so forth. Um, but it, it, it appears from early on that, um, you know, he had left the family and the family was pretty much glad about that.
6: Well, it sounds like it was a real big drama, you know, his family and everything going on. It sounds like it was all out of control almost, but I mean, was that just maybe the times and where he lived? Was that kind of common? Was his lifestyle not that far off or was it not very normal?
8: I I would suspect that a lot of what he did was normal, um, except for, you know, the killings and uh, probably the serial desertions that he uh, committed, you know, which you can never, uh, you know, understand why he would do it like three times in a row. And, you know, they're all, you know in pretty close proximity to you know the time of each one so he was no definitely not a master criminal if they even exist at all
6: yeah what a it's a, it's what a strange story so he got put to death then eventually right
8: right 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 and uh it's you know in, in the book i talk about uh you know the transition from hanging to the electric chair um in texas and in the united states uh, because in Texas they introduced the electric chair in 1924, um, and they replaced hanging. And before this, uh, when people were executed, uh, they were executed in the counties where they committed their crimes and where they were convicted. But this centralized um, executions in Texas, and and they had to make a death row in Huntsville. It wasn't there before. And so he was one of the, um, you know, early people on death row, and uh, he was – on death row twice because they had to take him back and forth to uh, uh, the panhandle for resentencing uh, once or twice. And uh, the, the electric chair, you know, uh, at that time period uh, was a pretty primitive looking device. And it was right down the hall from, you know, the death row. So you knew it was there. You know, the, the, the notion of the death penalty, you know, back then was that, you know, it was mostly African-Americans that were being executed. In fact, the first time they used it in 1924, they used it on five uh, black men in a row. And so they very rarely used it on, on white men. One of the interesting things I found, too, is they got rid of the gallows, you know, all over Texas, you know, in the counties, at the county jails. But in the Austin, uh, in the county that Austin's in, uh, they the prisoners all wanted them to keep the gallows there, and they wanted permission to sleep on them <laughs> for some reason. I don't, I never quite understood that, but maybe because you know uh, you know it was a nice wooden you know ba- barrier support, and they could sleep uh, higher up, um, and they just weren't allowed to sleep on you know where the trap was, where the bodies would fall.
7: What was his execution like? Did uh, did he have any last words or anything like that?
8: Well, he had kind of a, a you know, a, a couple of, of things to say. You know, basically uh, saying, uh, you know, that he was a lucky man, that he knew what his death date was, whereas everybody in that room, you know, had no idea when their death would be. Um, he expressed no remorse or anything like that. Um <clears throat> And you know, and there was a number of people of course that um observed uh the the uh, execution uh reporters and and so forth and uh you know he went he died bravely i mean there was no whimpering or anything like that and uh he went pretty quick compared to some other people that had been executed um about a year or two before he was executed uh a prison official allowed some of his friends to come with him, and they're all drunk to go into the jail when there was an execution and witness it and They were like teasing the guys being executed it was a huge scandal in the newspapers and everything um it got so bad that um, the priest wouldn't even deliver half uh, last rites and uh, it was uh, you know it was uh you know a pretty awful story, but you know this guy had the power to you know. Decide if they were going to watch the, uh, execution or not.
6: Did any, did anybody see him get electrocuted then or?
8: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there were 25 people in the room and there was just a kind of a, there's like a bar that separates, uh, the spot where the person's executed and the executioner is essentially the uh, warden of the Huntsville walls unit, uh, because he's the one that gives a signal, uh, to pull the switch and, uh, you know, and deliver the, uh, the electric power.
6: I thought you said there, I thought you were going to be a bar there so you could have cocktails and wash
8: <laughs> <laughs> No, no, one that type of bar. No. I mean, that's, that's a good idea, yes. though. I'm sure people would pay. I mean, executions used to be like that, where people would, you know, cu- people would be selling alcohol and food to see a hanging, a public hanging. Um, yeah. The, I, another reason they got rid of hanging in Texas is because of lynching um, was out of control uh, in that time period and so uh, there was too much of an association with the death penalty with extra-legal or illegal lynchings on the outside. It was kind of a pejorative term, hanging, and uh, they just went with the new technology. Yeah, yeah,
6: but it would have been pretty raw, like you were saying, so they, it was just like a chair that they strapped him up and gave him a shot of electricity. I guess he probably tried.
8: Well, I, I, you want to see a picture of it? I don't know. <laughs>
6: I mean, I have a picture of it if you want to see Did it Did like. you put it in the book, too, or no?
0: Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
2: I never win and tell.
0: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by
6: law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
8: Yeah, it's in the book. You know, this this is uh, the electric chair that was used.
6: Yeah. Pretty raw. That's
8: the first electric chair in in Texas. I mean, uh, electrocution had been uh, instituted in New York in 1890, uh, so they were, you know, kind of Johnny Come Lately. But
6: <laughs> I wonder how the did they experiment that, to figure out how much they needed, or I wonder how that kind of how they got it to where they had a system, you know, a chair that they, I guess they just over blasted you. I don't know.
8: You know, it was kind of a ex- experimental at first. In fact, the first person um, to be uh, electrocuted in New York was a guy named William Kemmler. And they had uh, to uh, almost barbecue him because three times they gave him what they thought was sufficient jolts, and each time he, his heart was still beating. And by the time, you know, he died, it, uh, he kind of smelled like roasting flesh. And people were like, you know, witnesses were vomiting, and, you know, it was it, – it didn't look good. In fact, someone said they shouldn't use the word uh, electrocution. They should say he was Westinghouse. <laughs> <laughs> because the, the electric chair was the product, and I'm sure you know this, You know, of a battle for the uh, electric current of America between Edison and Westinghouse. And one of the things Edison would do was he would travel around the country and show how dangerous AC current was, which was Westinghouse's current. Electrocuting animals like an elephant and dogs and, and so forth. And, uh, you know, AC was, is much more economical than DC and it won the battle of the currents ultimately. Um, but Edison tried to portray it as being very dangerous and that, you know, Americans shouldn't use it in the household. But, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of, there's some science that actually went into, you know, how many volts, uh, you know, to use before you know the the person was fully cooked uh and there were there there were a number of times when someone had to be i guess re-electrocuted um uh, but for the most part it, they they had it down pretty well
6: wow now d- were there were there family members of victims and stuff alive still or anybody that was around to talk about that, or did they interview anybody about that or would he just or did he just kill everyone?
8: no, no, I mean the wife had a pretty uh extended large extended family, and uh they were the uh, the fergusons and they actually went to his trial and and all of that and one of the things they did is they wanted to ensure that he wasn't buried with um you know the good people of Farwell and that he was buried um a certain way uh you know in which evil people are buried with the feet facing in one direction and the head in another. You know, we don't know if this ever came to pass. Um, but they were interviewed quite a, quite a few times. And um, one of the interesting things is I, I, I met a guy uh, who was related to that side of the family, and he says he's writing a book, you know, and I asked him if he'd share some of his research, and he said no. <laughs> but um, but I found an interview he did, and he claims that um, George and his first second wife were traveling around the country uh, doing uh, kind of bunco schemes, and he had been arrested for maybe killing someone in Chicago, you know, early on. And I was never able to substantiate any of that. Um, so I, I'm sure there's a lot, and I checked where he worked for missing people from that time periods that he was working there, like on an oil, in the oil fields in California. He worked as a chef in the Merchant Marine. Um, you know, he had a whole bunch of jobs that he did. You know, for very short periods of time. And uh, there's a lot of there's. I found photos in the newspapers from that time of him dressed up as a chef. Chef dressed up as a uh, you know, an oil field worker. You know, almost like he's trying on Halloween costumes. There's always that smile and those long uh, hands, long, large hands of his.
6: Well, it's just it's just a, a crazy story. We're, we're, it's it's not always easy to find a good information for for things back then too. Like going through old newspapers and stuff, it's pretty uh, inconsistent. As how I found it anyway when I did stuff.
8: No, I, I, agree, I agree with that. And, um, you know, you typically have to, you know, you know check, you know, a lot of these newspaper stories, number one, um, against, you know, other stories that you hear to see, you know, where they're the same and, and see if they're all coming from the same person. But I tended to take interviews I found with people that had come across him, like his former employers, um, you know, uh, that he had stolen from, that try to help him uh, in the early days. And, you know, just other people that had come in contact with him. Uh, like when he was printing his auction, the auction information, he went to a printer uh, in Farwell. And, uh, you know, he was, they're shooting the breeze with the guy and everything. And, you know, they interviewed uh, the person like 50, 60 years later. And uh, the one thing this guy remembered is that Hassel was wearing the same type of winter boots that he was wearing when he came in, and he never wore these boots for the rest of his life, just was it reminded of him. Um, so there's a lot of secondhand stories, um, and there, there, one of the things that was very helpful, I think, when from this information my former student gave me, is his family, he had family members that went up to Farwell in the 1980s, and they were in, able to interview the, some of the last jury members from the trial, a couple of people that were actually involved in... Um, uh, exhuming the corpses, uh, from the, uh, you know, from his farm. And, uh, so th- there was some information there that, you know, I didn't find anywhere else. And some of it, you know, I, you know, I took as, as gospel to a certain extent, but, um, you know, but th- I found that very interesting. And you got to remember too, is right after he was arrested and put in jail for this, this killing of his family in Farwell, he uh, called the sheriff over in the jail and he said, you know, this isn't my first rodeo. I killed another family back in California in 1917. And so, you know, they didn't believe it. They thought it was just another case of his braggadocio. And uh, he tried to explain where they could find the house. They were under the house. And he couldn't really figure it out. But, you know, it got figured out. And uh, they, they found the bodies. And in the L.A. Times, they had a picture of them digging the bodies out of this grave you know, the mother and the uh, three kids. And so this wasn't discovered until nine years later. Everybody thought that it just disappeared, you know, to Australia or wherever they were going.
6: Yeah, that's what they always say. Um, <laughs> oh, any surprises when you were doing the uh, in, doing the research, anything you didn't see coming?
8: Well, you know, I got off on some tangents I didn't, you know, expect to, uh, you know, get off on. Um you know, basically talking about, uh, you know, how people lived on the great plains and that sort of thing and how rare crime was. And, uh, you know, I, I guess, uh, the incestuous side of things. And I think the, the one thing I found since I still teach about serial homicide and mass murder, uh, was the fact that when you have a family annihilator, family annihilation, family murder, um, uh, tip, it's more likely to happen, um, if it's step. Parent and stepkids, um, and also the type of killing is much more up close and personal if it's a stepchild compar- compared if it's a child that you sired. And uh, you know, I found some different uh, uh, comparisons. And until uh, I guess, I'm trying to think of the guy in Arkansas that killed 14 family Simmons. Uh, uh, uh Gene Simmons, not Gene Gene was his middle initiative, but I'm sure the guy in case would do it, too. Uh, but, uh, but this guy killed 14 family members. He had impregnated one of his children, and these were all biological children. He shot them all. So we don't see, you know, the knives and the strangling and, and all of those that you see with George's uh, victims.
6: So uh, what's next? Are you going to do another one in the same sort of thing, or are you going to kind of go somewhere different with writing?
8: Well, you know, I, I really enjoyed working on this book, and um, there's two cases that really haven't been uh, covered a lot. Um, one was the uh, a serial killer. Uh, I'm from Annapolis, Maryland, and I went to undergraduate school at College Park, Maryland, and uh, the serial killer in the 50s and 60s, he's known as the sex beast, um, uh, you know, c- committed uh, serial killings in Annapolis and College Park. And... Um, you know his name is Melvin David Reese r e e s and i thought i might do some research on him and then there's the uh another texas bluebeard um he was known as the alligator man of elmendorf i don't know if you've heard of him uh but his name was joe ball and he had like a um, kind of one of these bars on the side of the road near san antonio and he would hire these women, um, you know, that he would find and you know, lawn ads and that sort of thing. And they'd come down there, and uh, he'd probably have an affair with them, and then they'd disappear. And as it would later turn out, uh, he had pet alligators. And uh, he would kill the women, apparently, and feed them to the alligators. And when the police, you know, went to investigate him, he shot himself in the heart and killed himself. So he seemed like uh, perhaps, you know, another person. Uh, but I am actually working on um, two books right now. One's called Murder by Mail, A Global History of the Letter Bomb. And um, th- that's been a fun book to research I'm about halfway through that. And this summer I researched um, the relationship between uh, Judge Isaac Parker, the hanging judge at Fort Smith, Arkansas, and his executioner, which is a guy named George Maladon. And, um, you know, I've started work on a book, The the Judge and the Executioner, or The Judge and the Hangman, um, and seeing where that goes. Wow. Yeah. Do
6: you ever get depressed?
8: (laughs) (laughs) No, not really. I'm on the the right
6: meds. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, modern medication. Um, Now, so how do you um, interact with readers and stuff like that? Do you do social media a lot, or are you doing a website? Where do people find you?
8: Well, to my detriment, I'm not, I haven't been doing a very good job of it. And, uh, you know, I'll go down to Austin or Houston and, you know, do a book signing at, you know, one of the more reputable bookstores, you know, if the book warranted, uh, you know, people's interest. Um, but, you know, I've left the marketing to mostly, uh, you know, my publishers and my different books because I have publishers in, in England and I've had, you know, books published in China and, uh, you know, Turkey, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, they get marketed in those countries. Um, but I, I've been pretty lousy at marketing myself and, and my books. And I'm, tr- I'm going to make a website. I've decided for this particular book and I've already lined up some talks because it's just about to hit the bookstores this week. And, um, you know, I, I've just got to get better. In fact, maybe I can find it uh, some information from you, from, from the best uh, how to mar- Yeah, how to there market. you go.
6: You know, Dave's the marketer. He's oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have to hit Dave up. Um, well, fantastic. Uh, how how would did? I guess the pandemic. So it sounded like it was good for you.
8: Oh, I loved the pandemic. It was great. I mean, for flying, you had your own personal jet. <laughs> uh, you know, I was actually, you know, didn't mind it at all. I mean, because I fly a lot and it never stopped me from flying. And, um, for teaching, you know, I didn't, you know, have to see the students in person, you know, and so I could teach online. I, I kind of liked that as well. So, um, and I live a pretty solitary life except for playing poker. And, uh, you know, it, it was great except for poker. I should say we couldn't have our poker group together anymore, so we uh, we put a game together on Poker Stars, so we all played together in one game online. But the pandemic, you know, it's my my son called it the Boomer Remover. <laughs> <laughs> he's eight, he's eighteen, oh, you see, my. and uh, you know, so uh, luckily nothing uh, bad's happened to our family yet as far as that goes, and. My mom got it, and she's like 94 and she you know lived through
6: it. Uh well so, yeah um, you just never know you know uh how it's like anything you know in life and and what what affects us and stuff like that. The next one
8: will be worse I can tell you well, that. Well yeah
6: I mean and that'll be the Gen Z remover. <laughs>
8: yeah right. <laughs> exactly.
6: Just you know. Uh, well it's funny but um do, do you think that um but do things outside of you see you have to be pretty um how do i say this you have to be pretty steady to write this kind of crime and murder and stuff like that so um but do things around you get involved in your writing and things like that like yeah, because there's some really nutty things going on in the world, especially in the states and a lot of stuff that happens and tension and stress and all that. Does that sort of, does that affect your writing at all or it not, just Not matter?
8: really. Nothing really bothers me to be honest with you. And, um, you know, and I live in Texas, you know, you know, and so you gotta, you know, look at that. If, if that doesn't bother you, to begin with, you know, you've got a strong constitution. Um, and there's always strange crimes going on here. Um, I've been doing a lot of TV interviews about that escape from the uh, the prison transport bus. I don't know if you heard about it a few months ago. And yeah. he's a Mexican mafia guy, and he got out. He was an assassin for the cartels. Ends up killing a, fa- a grandfather and his four grandchildren in their house, and um, and that happened not far, you know, from uh, from here. Uh, but you, you're always hearing about crime, gunfights in Houston, and so forth, and i 've had students that um, were homicide cops, and they would take me to homicides in Houston if I wanted and <laughs> so you know for you know for a little entertainment on a full moon, you know perfect night on a weekend let 's go out well The funny thing is too is I, I, you know you know I, I just people that i 've met before and they 'll say they don 't like anybody who 's morbid, and I try and sell myself as being someone who 's not that morbid you know. Um, and eventually I end up bringing them to the dark side to enjoy the stuff that I enjoy.
6: Great. You got any bodies in your basement or anything going on? I've or, been
8: asked that before. But, yeah. but the basement's been filled in.
6: <laughs> so you're saying we'll never know. No, no, no. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Okay, so uh, now did you have a website then or not?
8: No, I don't have a website.
6: Okay, so we'll have your book up so people can find you with one click. And, uh, you know, what more can we say? It's been uh, great talking to you and about your new book, and uh, and uh, we wish you the best. Uh, the book is called Man with a Killer Smile. And uh, the guest, the author, Mitchell P. Roth. So thank you for coming on the show.
8: Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
6: Thanks, Mitchell.
4: you prepared? Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick. Go.
2: If you're a fan of stories that make you afraid to turn the lights off at night, then you will love Moonless Nocturne, tales of dark fantasy and horror from attorney, former Air Force officer, special agent for the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and Bram Stoker award-winning author, Hank Schwabel. Moonless Nocturne is a chilling set of ten tales that offers an exquisite and impressive showcase of the author's talents that are sure to entertain and intrigue readers who love a good thrill with an introduction by the Iconic F. Paul Wilson. Moonless Nocturne is a gourmet platter of both red meat and rare delicacies, not only for aficionados of horror, mystery, thrillers, and suspense, but any connoisseurs of fantastic fiction. It's inventive and original. This collection has already been optioned for television and film by Lone Tree Entertainment and is certain to appeal to fans of King, Barker, Matheson, and Jackson. It's not the dark that should scare you. It's all the things that lurk there. Order your copy right now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Moonless Nocturne. Tales of dark fantasy and horror. From author Hank Schwebel.
3: Morning face. You get it when you don't sleep well.
2: Look, we know that boy's going to ask again, so let's be ready. Fine. I'll be him. You ready? Ready.
7: Mom, could you hook me up with a go phone?
2: You'll run up the bill, son. Yo, that's whack, moms. Go phone is totally different. What? It'll only cost me an arm? Chillax. It has unlimited talk and text. Seriously? Word. Okay. We'll get a go phone. Really? Uh, Really? That is the bomb. Do you even know what
6: the bomb means? Yes. No.
8: Go phone. only from AT&T. With unlimited talk to 65 million wireless AT&T customers and now unlimited text to anyone on any network. AT&T, your
5: world delivered. The following is an important time-insensitive announcement from Staples. Now, for an unlimited time only, Staples is drastically cutting their everyday prices on hundreds of products your business needs. That's right. The clock is not ticking. What? crawl or lullagag to Staples and you will not miss this opportunity these are everyday price cuts take a 4 pack of AA Duracell batteries was 4.79 now just 2.99
2: Now back to the show
0: with Alan Dave.
5: Okay, we
6: made it back. You know, another day, another story. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I you know, Mr. Mr. Um Mr. Horror reviewer, Revo- I haven't heard anything yeah. about the terrifier two. The terrifier two? Have you have you not watched yeah. it or
7: no, seen it? It's, no.
6: Terrifier 2. I mean, no. one, one came out, I guess, and I think it was 16 or something. And it's about a clown that goes around and, you know, basically oh, causes yes. terror and kills people. But this is like a real slasher.
7: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it's
6: real. I, 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 you know, like, I thought for sure you would have watched this.
7: No, not yeah, have and it's a clown, and my wife hates clowns. Well, she doesn't if, even like regular clowns. Never mind. No,
6: neither do I. I don't get them, but, <laughs> you know, people. Uh, but uh, it's just—it's a strange one too, because he does, um, you know, like it's making people vomit and pass out <laughs> and all sorts of stuff when they see it at the theater.
5: Yeah,
6: and it, it is pretty pretty wild. Some of the stories I've heard.
7: Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I used to, you know, as a teen, I loved gore. And my favorite horror magazine was Gore Zone. But as I've gotten older, I've kind of lost my stomach for it.
6: <laughs> oh, you're getting weak.
7: I'm getting weak, man.
6: What's going on? Well, I thought for sure you would have uh it, you know, at least I didn't uh, even know it was out. Yeah. yeah, it's been apparently it's doing pretty well too. It's it's um opening they're adding another nine hundred theaters or something and Okay. And uh so it's doing well considering, you know, it's supposed to be really really vile. Like things come out of the woman's uh vagina, you know, and <laughs> and uh and uh, it's just it's just really crazy stuff and it's real gore. Like he really kills people harshly. Wow. Like it's not hiding anything. <laughs> I thought.
7: I can't even remember if I saw the original Terrifier.
6: You know, I didn't. I didn't. I've yeah. never. I never heard of it actually, or I don't think I did. It certainly never came across my uh, my my mind at this anyway. But um, um, yeah, it I was in 2016. Yeah. yeah, in 16, it was apparently a around. But <laughs> uh, so this is a uh, over two hours long too. Oh, two hours. Hundred and thirty-eight minute runtime. Wow! And you can also watch it um, streaming. Okay. And so you don't have to um, go to a theater. Uh, oh, but it,
7: so it's in it's in theaters and streaming.
6: Yeah, it's in both. And okay. and it looks like a Blu-ray um, collector edition is already out for pre-order right now.
7: Oh, okay.
6: And it's uh, bloody disgusting.
7: Okay, <laughs> that's that's the um, the paper, the, the company, or yeah. That's
6: uh, well, it sounds pretty pretty good to me. Um,
7: <laughs> are, are you going to watch it, out?
6: I probably will. <laughs> I
7: probably will uh, you know. I didn't think that was your your type of thing.
6: No, and this, apparently he takes a man's penis off. Oh,
7: <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'm not going to watch this. Like this is, <laughs> the, and, and the thing is, it's like really gory
6: it's showing it all right yeah um this is uh gonna make the exorcist look like a comic book <laughs> Right. <laughs> i mean wow hmm. I, I you know i'm sort of, yeah so you know not into that sort of thing hey eh?
7: i used to be i used to i would watch you know like faces of death on vhs and you know whatever it was it was kind of like a rite of passage it felt like you know to watch you know, whatever it was that was supposed to be the, you know, the, 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 the mo- you know, the, the most, um, I don't know, out there, outrageous, yeah. scary, gory, whatever, whatever it was. But I, I've, I've kind of, yeah, I'm just not into as, as much into gore, but now, you know, you're piquing my interest, though.
6: <laughs> well, I think, I think the idea, uh, back in the 80s was you wanted yeah. things to, 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 You know, push the envelope as they say get further and you want it more and more we were like waiting for nudity on TV or something right right. swearing (laughs) and all that exciting stuff like that's what you're looking for but I think it's already sort of all been done now so I'm sort of surprised that it's making such a big splash yeah Um, well I
7: think some of the movies today have become a little bit sanitized and maybe that's why
6: yeah because apparently this is all out there yeah you know, cinema, like- cin- they're saying fainting and vomiting. Um, so it must be pretty, uh, pretty wild. Yeah. You know, this would be great to have some like, you know, dipping sauce and. <laughs>
7: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, good. it's good for for dinner. Yeah. Put that on, eat your dinner. What's wrong with that? Yeah. You know, I've got it.
6: Yeah. You know, have some, you know, I don't know, bloody chili sauce.
7: Yeah, or you know, barbecue wings or something. Yeah, like that. that's it. That'd be a All, good one.
6: Yeah, lots of um, <laughs> lots of liquid. So yeah, so there's that. You
2: know. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino movie reviews. You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.
4: How you doing? This is Gary Garver. In today's society, the majority of people are not getting enough sleep. I know I'm not. If you're like me and having problems getting a good night's rest, whether it's health or stress-related, I have a solution for you, South Pacific Sleep Lab. South Pacific Sleep Lab will do an evaluation of your sleep pattern and will provide a comprehensive study so you can start getting a restful, peaceful night of sleep. They take all types of insurance, which will cover your cost of the evaluation, and they will even provide transportation to their offices at no cost to you. For more information, contact Tony at 310-999-1887. That's 310-999-1887. Tony even stays awake all night, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, so you can sleep better and rest easy. South Pacific Sleep Lab. Start feeling better and getting a great night of sleep today.
3: You can shop online for Youngevity at www.kcaateam.com. Or you can order by phone by calling 800 982 3197 and tell customer support that you are part of the KCAA team. Youngevity is an American company based in San Diego. Call Younggevity at 800 982 3197 and ask about monthly auto ship that allows you to buy Youngevity products at wholesale prices. That number again, 800-982-3197.
1: Tejibo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system. The complete website is TeheboTeaClub.com or call us at 818-610-8088, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-610-8088, TeheboTeaClub.com. I'm Rick Smith, host of The Rick Smith Show, inviting you to listen to my show during the noon hour every weekday right here on KCAA.
8: My show is sponsored locally by Teamsters 1932. A strong union with 14,000 members in the IE. Our message is clear. Unions improve the lives of working people. You have a right to form and join a union. So go to Teamsters1932.org and get started now. You're on board KCAA's Inland Talk Express. KCAA Loma Melinda.